Attention, everyone. And welcome to our fourth commentary, and this is for War of the Gargantuas. Uh, joining me here in the KaijuCast studio, of course, I'm Kyle, and I have to my left, Martin Vavra. Hey there. And to my right on the immediate right, this is Brian Cook. Hey, what's up? And uh, Cindy is is back, and this time for her commentary. Welcome to your first commentary, Cindy. Thank you. Good to be here. And uh, basically, what we did is we, we ran a poll on the website to see which was the uh, most desired movie for us to do a commentary for, and uh, War of the Gargantuas won by a landslide, actually. So uh, we're just going to go ahead and get started. What we have going on right now is we've got the movie paused right as the UPA logo has come up. So if you are uh, watching it on Netflix, you can still uh, watch along with us. You just have to pause it right, right when that logo comes up. And basically... Uh, you know, get ready to go, because we're going to start talking when you hear the Gargantua scream. <laughs> so, where are the Gargantuas? It's originally called, uh, in Japan, Frankenstein no Kaiju, Sanda Taigaira, which is literally uh, Frankenstein's monsters, Sanda versus Gaira. It was released in Japan in July, uh, July 31st, actually, 1966. And it was released in the U.S. by Marin Films as a double bill with War uh, with Monster Zero on July twentieth, nineteen seventy. Now the actor you see here on the screen is actually uh, <clears throat> his name is Ren Yamamoto. If I can find my notes for it, he's in here somewhere. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, he's a memorable character actor, and uh. He worked from 1930 to 2000, or he's alive from 1930 to 2003, and uh, he's been in a ton of movies. Uh, most notably, he was the survivor of the very first Godzilla, well, one of the first Godzilla attacks in the original Godzilla. Uh, he was also in Godzilla Raids Again, Rodan, King Kong vs. Godzilla, Mothra vs. Godzilla, and Frankenstein Conquers the World. And uh, as you can see here, he's being attacked by an octopus, <laughs> which is, you know... Uh, there's a there's there's a pretty strong like creepiness to to octopi in general, but uh, Japan has a has a long history with finding them uh, creepy. And actually, there are some yokai, some uh, creepy uh, ghosts and goblins that are actually um, tentacled. And I know think we all know <clears throat> the tentacle stuff that's going on in Japan these days that we don't need to talk about on this family friendly program. <laughs> <laughs> that's another commentary. Yeah. So, uh, but this this uh, octopus that you see here. Uh, now, three of us were here for the the Daikaiju discussion we did for Frankenstein Conquers the World, uh, and basically the octopus that was built for the ending of that film is what you see here getting used in in the intro to War of the Gargantuas. But this is not considered part of that, though. This isn't a sequel or anything that's associated with that. Well, technically, this movie is actually a sequel. Um, at least it was it was conceived as a sequel to the original Frankenstein Conquers the World. Uh -huh. um, what happened, though, is that um, when uh, Frankenstein Conquers the World didn't do so well in America, and then uh, the co-production of 
because what happened with Henry Saperstein, who was the basically the guy in charge in America of bringing in Japanese stuff from Toho, uh, most mostly Godzilla movies. That's why everybody who's a Godzilla fan should know who Saperstein is. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, uh, they said like they didn't look enough like Frankenstein. They there's no real connection to Frankenstein, so they went back and um, if you watch the Japanese version. There's lots of references to Frankenstein. Yeah. But they went back and they made a bunch of changes to the actual scripts and to uh, to the story and basically took out all references to Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are a couple of little things you'll see. And we'll, we'll make note of them as they, as they happen on screen that do reference that film, but they are uh, like hazy references at best. Sure. Now, the guy playing... The green Gargantua, whose name whose name is Gaira, that is actually Haru Nakajima, who plays the original Godzilla, and uh, he really, really looks awesome in this costume. I mean, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, this costume is is really cool because it allows him to have tons of mobility. You can actually see his eyes. Uh, it's just kind of cool. I was going to say he probably loved wearing the suit compared to some of the others with. The exception of some something that happens later on that I will comment about. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yeah. now we're at the credits. So you noted the first person up there was Rust Hamblin. Rust Hamblin uh, we'll see soon enough. And the second credit was actually Kip Hamilton, who basically is just in this movie as a as like a uh, a guest appearance, but she gets second to top billing, which is I find kind of weird. Um, but you know they're Americans, so they got to be up there in the, in the top for the American version. But who's the the big one? Uh, the the first one, Russ Hamlin. No, the the big name that's not the English, not Americans. Kenji Sahara. Yeah. Okay. Who's so, in tons of these? Yes, Kenji Sahara is in in tons of these movies. And yeah. We'll definitely talk about Sahara later. Uh, but so is Kumi Mizuno. She's in mm-hmm. a bunch of the movies. There's a whole bunch of you'll. I'll, I'm going to be talking about a lot of the background players that you see here. Some of the secondary characters, because typically when you watch one of these films, you that's what you see, is you see a lot of the same actors over and over again. And that's what's really cool for me, from my perspective, is seeing all those those faces come back. Speaking of those faces, the officer on the left is uh, played by Hisaya Ito, who uh, was the chief assassin in Ghidra, the three-headed monster. Nice. And they're talking, of course, they're talking here about the... Uh, they're talking about the the boat sinking and the victim, and uh, one of the things they're questioning in this particular movie is the man says a monster sank the sank the boat, like, and they're that's like a surprise to them. So is this not the same universe as Godzilla? It's not very clear no, in, in the Japanese not. version. It's uh, kind of referenced that it's maybe Frankenstein comeback or a mutation of it as well. Right, but as far as, like, kaiju go, like, they don't really talk about other attacks. You never hear any references to Godzilla or Baragon, if you're yeah, going to go with that's that. That's true, yeah. Now, there's Russ Tamblin. Russ Tamblin uh, as Dr. Paul Stewart. Tamblin's primarily known for his role as Riff, the leader of the Jets, in the 1961 West Side Story. Uh, he's been in a ton of films, though, and is the father of Amber Tamblin. Uh, plus, he was in David Lynch's Twin Peaks and uh, he was also in Cabin Boy, which is one of my favorite roles. Where he, he was, plays, yep. he plays the shark uh, man <laughs> that saves him. <laughs> I want to say his name is Sharky, but I don't think that's right. 
Uh, anyway, Tamlin said that he had pretty much retired from acting at the time uh, of of this filming. He basically got the call and was offered the job to go to Japan. And he said, hey, sounds cool. Take a free trip to Japan. Even though he did not think much of the actual script, he said it was pretty much garbage. And uh, and he did did his job and left and uh, then didn't even think about the movie. He thought it would never get released in America. Uh, Marin Films, who was in charge of releasing this movie, didn't really even alert him that it was out. And he didn't even find out that it had come to America until it was like, being shown on TV, I think KTLA or something like that, where they showed, you know, the same movie every night for <laughs> the week. And he, that's how he found out about the movie being, being done. <laughs> and then eventually he found out that it had hit somewhat of a cult status. Now the guy on uh, Tamlin's left there was uh, Yoshifumi Tajima, who's another character actor from the Toho universe that we know and love. Uh, he's also been in a lot of movies, but my favorite role of him is Kumiyama, the great entrepreneur from Mothra vs. Godzilla, a.k.a. Godzilla vs. The Thing. So this is one of those scenes, uh, actually I was talking about before we started recording. This scene is in the Japanese version of this film, but Tamblin is not in it. It's very, very weird. Hmm. Um, yeah, in the Japanese version, you just get uh, Tajima there leaning over and talking to Yamamoto, who uh, actually said something about Frankenstein. And, but here he says, I think, giant monster or something like that. Yeah. And here we go. Here's another scene that uh, I when I actually had to rewind both movies, I was watching them side by side and I had to rewind them both at the same time and show them to my son because I was shocked that basically this these scenes there's only a handful of them it's like they were shot uh with tamlin and then shot again without tamlin um and i don't know why that is but basically this exact same scene is in the is in the japanese version of the movie but it's how tamlin's on the right like it's some other japanese guy on on the right hand side it's like <laughs> nice. it's like they george lucas special edition this movie specifically to put tamlin in and i know that's not how it actually went down but um i'd be very interested in find in finding out why that they shot two different scenes like that or the same scene two different times at least and the same thing here too tamlin's on the right like just kind of off just in the background <laughs> If if CGI were a thing, I'd totally suspect that. But uh, this is <laughs> we're talking 1966. <laughs> well, unless they spent those three years trying to figure out how to put him into there for the 70s release in America, <laughs> he's just an animated <laughs> character. <laughs> like and every every cell is like painstakingly composited on there. I would not uh, I would not be surprised. So one of the things that Tamlin said about this movie is that. Um, uh, now, if you've watched the, the American version and you're not just listening to us talk, you'll notice that Tamlin looks kind of boring as he's acting his way through this film. And so he had to actually re-record a whole bunch of his lines. I think all of his lines because they, they told him that the audio track had been lost. And unfortunately for him, what he did when he read the script, he's like, well, this is not how Americans talk. I'll just ad lib this. And so there's a there's a point earlier in the film where he actually says something about uh, you know some hikers said they saw a big giant monster 
uh, in the mountains. And he's like, oh, maybe they were on a bad LSD trip. So thank you, Rust Hamblin, for the drug reference. <laughs> uh, he makes a few more of those throughout the movie. And they're just, you know, it, those, those are the problems that he had, like trying to remember what his lines were because he's just strayed so far from the shooting script. Now, you say that, uh, you said earlier that this isn't connected to the other Godzilla movies, but this is referenced later on in other Godzilla movies. That is correct. In the, um, in, what is it, uh, in, uh, Godzilla against Mechagodzilla, they, they bring back the Mazer cannon, which we'll see later, but they also, don't they show the Gargantua? One yeah, of the I think there's a quick, yeah. like, shot of But it's stock just stock footage. footage, really. But aside from that, there's no real reference in the Godzilla universe to Gargantua's. Except for that. And so here's the very first reference you have in this film, in the American version of this film, to the Japanese version of the film and also to the uh, Frankenstein Conquers the World. Tamlin here and his co-star, Kumi Mizuno, who's playing Dr. Akemi, uh, she is talking about uh, how they raised this baby brown gargantua, which is... Very, very similar uh, to the the them talking about or to them what they did in uh, her and Nick Nick Adams did in the first film here where we're talking about Frankenstein conquers the world. Right. They basically were doing the same thing. They just swapped out Frankenstein or the Frankenstein boy with the baby Gargantua here. Now the Japanese version of this has like monkey sounds when you're watching it like the <laughs> the baby gargantua was like wah, 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 and like that's you don't get that in the american version nice vector scopes you guys <laughs> yeah, this is almost a it's almost like an evil dead style remake sequel of uh the scene right here of uh of the frankenstein conquers the world scene and she's playing almost essentially the exact same character she really is i mean if you if you even look at her name in the movie uh, she, it's Dr. Akemi Togawa and her name in the last film was Dr. Sueko Togami. So it's, it's very similar. She really does look the same. I mean, you're talking about the movie from one year to the next, you know, movies from one year to the next. And they are, like I said, like the original films were actually supposed to be sequels. They also could not get, uh, Nick Adams to be in that, in that, uh, in this film. So that's why they called Mr. Rust Hamblin. Now this guy here, leaning over the boat and screaming, uh, he's also a bit actor. You see a, a lot of films. Uh, pretty much one of the reasons that I, uh, one of the reasons that I recognize him is because he's the mute. Uh, he's not a henchman. He's almost like a gardener in Terror of Mechagodzilla. And he's one of the, like, if you watch Terror of Mechagodzilla, he's weird. Like, he's just a weird character that's, like, there's no reason for him to really be in there. He's just a menacing, mute, and freaky. He also plays uh, a supporting role in Yojimbo, the Akira Kurosawa film. And he's in more than just that Akira Kurosawa film. Yeah, I think he's been in a lot of things. He's been in a lot of Toho productions. And he, I actually, you know, to bring up Godzilla versus the Thing or Mothra versus Godzilla again, I'm pretty pretty sure that he's the same guy who plays the Shinto priest at, on the beach telling the uh, fishermen that it's okay to go out and get the egg when it's floating in their waters.
Okay, so this is a weird, another weird scene where the Japanese version is blocked just completely differently. Um, in the Japanese version, I think she's in the middle and, uh, Kenji Sahara is the closest person to you and Tamlin's on the other side. And there's just, the dialogue is different. The, uh, the sentiment is different. Here they're talking about like, they're, they're going to have to be the ones to figure out how to save the world from the gargantuas. And then the Japanese version, they're more about figuring out like, is the, is the, the, are the two monsters really the same? Which is really what it should be. I mean, it's not up to the scientists that are cloning Gargantua to, to figure out what to, you know, how to save the earth. Unless they're going to create another Gargantua to save the world. I don't know. Check out these awesome footprints, bro. They're like in the snow. So Kenji Sahara, as uh, as we talked about, playing Dr. Yujo, sorry, Yuzo Majita, uh, he has appeared in more Godzilla films than any other actor. And in addition to playing the lead in Rodan, some of his memorable movie roles in the kaiju genre have been Torahata. He's the other guy in Mothra vs. Godzilla, the, the other bad guy. He's the helicopter pilot June in the TV show Ultra Q from Tsuburaya Productions. Uh, he plays Commander Nishikawa in Destroy All Monsters. And uh, he plays Obata in the 1970 Yogg Monster from Space. I love these kind of scenes in monster movies where they, they're right now looking for like fur samples or cell samples from uh, Gyra. I love when you break down monster movies to like the smallest little level. Do you, so do you like Biollante where they're, you know, you got all the guys in the beginning of Godzilla versus Biollante looking for the cells and the different factions from different countries trying to obtain Godzilla cells? It's been so long since I've seen Biollante Just that, say I, yes. that Just I'd say have yes. to re-examine <laughs> yes. my opinion. Yes, but say yes. Cindy, do you like that? Yes. All right. So, yes. So Thank everyone you. should say yes. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it the last time I saw it, but it's been way too long, so... But I do love that. I uh, There's also a scene in the first Gamera uh, movie of the Gamera trilogy from the 90s where she digs through the Gaios poop. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she pulls out the glasses yeah, and the pen. It's it's. I mean, it's just like a scene in Jurassic Park, but I enjoyed it a lot. I love those kind of little details. So they call these the Japanese Alps. And so this is another example of a scene that's almost completely different. Um, basically... In the Japanese version, you don't see nearly as much as you do in the American version of uh, Mr. Tamlin here. And so, uh, as these guys are talking about where where the footsteps are, where the footprints in the snow are, um, I am actually sort of torn about the scene. I like it because of, of what it's trying to set up, but it's just so completely different. Where they are right now, they're looking down onto snow, but there's no snow around them. It's just... Uh, it's a little weird. I mean, I know that you're talking about sort of a glacial area. There's snow there, of course. Mm. So how do you guys feel about Kumi Mizuno? You've seen her in a bunch of movies before. She's the bathing beauty in Gorath. She's uh, 
plays, of course, Miss Namikawa in Monster Zero. I love that role of her. I'm looking the most. specifically at Martin. I because he knows how much I love that movie. <laughs> I I think she's really great, and I find her to be a very good presence on screen, and I think she's very attractive. She's actually she's totally a fan favorite. Like people, like especially American fans, love Kumi Mizuno. I would be afraid of her actually going to a Godzilla convention, um, because of what people might do. Hey, this is uh, Doctor Kita, played by Nobu Nakamura, and he was uh, he's been in a bunch of these films too. But he's also been in a bunch of Kurosawa films, which I'm sure Brian is aware of. He was in Throne of Blood. The Bad Sleep Well, Ikiru, and um, High and Low. But kaiju fans will recognize him from his leading role as Dr. Munakata in Degora, the space monster. And uh, he was also in Half Human and Frankenstein Conquers the World. So um, for any Japanese lovers out there, people who love Japan... Uh, if you ever fly into Tokyo from, from the U.S., um, chances are you're actually going to fly into Narita, and that is not the airport they're referencing here. This airport is called Haneda, otherwise known as the Tokyo International Airport in the 60s, um, because at this point, uh, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't too much traffic coming to Japan, and basically, this was the main hub in Tokyo. And so, in 19, let's say the early 70s, they decided to build a brand new uh, airport. And the only reason I'm even saying this is because I was like, oh, which airport is this? And it's like, oh, it's Haneda. I've never been to Haneda. And then I started researching why. And th there's way more information about like the building of the brand new Narita airport that I could even spout off about this uh, it, during the scene. But basically, uh, they they built the second airport to alleviate the congestion at Haneda. And today, Haneda Airport pretty much handles the domestic flights. That looks so awesome. I love seeing the jumbo jets. I was going to ask, like, is this the first time, 1966, is the first time we ever see a monster at an airport, you know, terrorizing yeah. jumbo jets? I'm not sure. I love the miniature work. I love all this stuff. Like, oh, this looks so cool. Yeah, this has always been one of my favorite scenes since I was a little kid. I love the little model planes and everything. Well, I think this is definitely one of those things that you look at and you're like, you're just like, yeah, Toho is not making a movie for kids. I mean, by 1966, Toho was making their Godzilla movies, you know, more and more kid friendly. And, um, like this is, so 1966 is the year after Gamera came out. And, uh, so this is not like that. I mean, this is a, this is more like Rodan, where it's more like a horror movie. Like there, he just ate that poor woman. Be like Lebowski. They're gonna eat that <laughs> poor woman. <laughs> he eats her and then spits her clothes out. Yes. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> I actually never realized that. Like when I, the first time I watched this, I didn't realize that it was supposed to be overcast. Because <laughs> I live in Oregon, I guess. Yeah. But, the, <laughs> it's always uh, but yeah, so the, when when they realize that the Gargantua, uh, the Gyra runs away because of the the sunlight, I never, I just didn't think that that was a that was an issue. It was really overcast in Japan that day, you guys. 
I love how the suits for the gargantuas look and how fast the actors move inside the suits. I think that sets it apart from other kaiju movies. And for me, I, I really love that, that look. Now, the gargantuas were designed by an artist named Tol Narita. And he, was, uh, he worked on a lot of Ultraman stuff, actually. And so, have the suits come back in anything? Yes, they have. <laughs> they were uh, there's a there's a TV show from the 70s, which I unfortunately don't have a lot of information on, but it's documented online. Sci-Fi Japan has a has a wonderful article about this show called Go Godman, and I think another one called Go Greenman. I'm I waiting for you to correct me. On I, that. I think that's right. Anyway, so basically they were they brought back several Toho kaiju, and then later on, much later. Um, Go Godman was produced like I think in 2008 they did another little mini series with Go Godman so you guys know what they're traveling on there that's uh, for another all you Japan lovers out there yep that's the bullet train otherwise known as the Shinkansen and uh, guess how fast that that was probably going in 1966 156 miles an hour very close 137 nice But they can hit speeds up to 275 miles an hour now, which I find um, rather terrifying, <clears throat> but very cool. Uh, so please welcome to the screen after our uh, our scientists come on here. This is uh, one of my favorite bit players, character actors, Jun Tazaki. Uh, and he's in many, many films. He often plays... A scientist or a man of authority, like a like a military commander, like he's playing here. Um, aside from Doctor Sakurai and Monster Zero, he was also uh, Doctor Yoshida in Destroy All Monsters. Uh, he also played the gruff news editor Arota in Mothra vs Godzilla. And uh, my favorite role of his is Captain Jungichi. Nope, I said that wrong. Captain Jinguchi in 1963's Atragon. Yeah, I like seeing him every time. When he came onto the screen the first time I saw this, I was like, oh, that's sweet. This guy, yeah, it was it was definitely like a lot of memorable people coming back. I, You know, it's really one of those things that I love about watching these movies is seeing the same actors over and over again, all, you know, all playing different parts, even though sometimes they play very similar roles. It's, it's just, it's refreshing to see the same people. I, I think I was listening to another commentary. And they were talking about how uh, Ishiro Honda, the director of this film, liked working with the same people and the same. It's very easy for directors to work with the same actors over and over again. That's a really cool, like, set basically outside the window. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the use of colors in the miniature work and the in the map paintings and stuff in this stands apart from the Godzilla films. I feel there's a lot more like orange and reds it's a lot darker than a lot of godzilla films from this time period oh here's tamla's talking about calming him down trying to calm down the gargantua (laughs) now we're approaching an infamous an infamous song in the entire kaiju landscape (laughs) (laughs) this was the place that i had no promises on okay so Uh, i think i think everybody knows what's about to happen (laughs) this is kip hamilton uh 20th century fox starlet who is uh, been brought to the States specifically for this role. She's the one, of course, in this version who got top second to top building. 
and so she is going to sing a song called Feel in My Heart, which a lot of people um, call Words Get Stuck in My Throat. I swear there are <laughs> so many comments on the internet about uh, her getting stuck in the gargantuous throat. It's like, <laughs> I can't. Actually, this is one of my favorite karaoke songs, so I'm going to kind of kick in here in a second one. Okay, good. I, I'm sure everyone will be waiting as I turn your volume down. The, uh, so, so basically, um, there's some speculation that she is actually in this movie because at the time she may have been um, uh, Henry Sampersine's girlfriend. Not set in stone, not actually documented anywhere. She's the Kate Capshaw of this film. Uh, but basically, she was a oh, sister-in-law dear. of Carol Burnett. And... Uh, and she basically she wasn't in a ton of stuff. She was just kind of in like a couple of movies and like made appearances on TV shows in the sixties. The most the the only thing she was in for more than one episode was a, a TV show called The Texan with Rory Calhoun. Uh, this was of course her last picture, and she died in nineteen eighty one when she lost her battle with breast cancer. Now I can't make fun of this. Yeah, you made it sad. I, okay, so let me bring it back up then. So in a, a few years ago, there was an episode of a TV show called Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated called Battle of the Humongonauts, and they pretty much remade this scene, like, uh, including the song. This in that's, the- a, that's a name? Humongonauts? That's the name of the episode. I'm so... I want to find that now. <laughs> I... I should probably include a link in the show notes to this, but basically, that's, I mean, this exact same thing happens. She sings this exact so- song, and then this gigantic green humanoid monster uh, trashes everything. Now, a lot of people actually uh, transpose the woman from the airport in, with Kip Hamilton here, and they a lot of people actually think that Kip Hamilton got eaten by the gargantua. <laughs> that's kind of awesome. <laughs> her her screaming's a little off. But... So if you if you look at the gargantuous face, if you look at Gyra's face, it is just ugly. I mean, seriously ugly. Bony cheeks, really wide nose, nasty teeth that stick out. Uh I mean, the only thing obviously you're going to see from Haruo Nakajima underneath the the costume is his eyes. But they really made Gyra something terrifying. Like, like I was saying earlier, this is a this is kind of a horror movie. This is you know this is another Rodan in a sea of non horror movies from Toho where they just get more and more children uh, focus more and more on the kids. This movie is much more like you know scary. And it should be noted that that scene uh, is very much a harbinger for the rest of Kip's career. From that time on. Oh, is that what you were going to say before? <laughs> Simply dropped from the hand, and <laughs> it's over. <laughs> uh, so the oh, I want to say something here. Actually, the audio that uh, we can barely hear here in the studio, uh, the newscaster talking about the Gargantua coming ashore, um, was used in a track from Manorastro Man, which is like this really amazing sci-fi-themed surf rock band from Alabama. It's called Gargantua's Last Stand. And uh, I've played it on the show a few times. It's really one of my favorite songs from them. And um, it's on an album, coincidentally, called Destroy All Astro Men from 1994. You should check it out.
And while we're on that topic, there is a band called Quicksand that has a song called Brown Gargantua really? on their album Manic Compression. I have that album. I didn't realize that. I should check that out after the show. Don't don't let me forget that because okay. I actually do have that album. So for a, a guy that was in his silk pajamas in bed, he certainly sprang to life at 3 a.m. and got his tie on in a hurry. <laughs> well, if Kumi Mizuno was coming over to your house... I would not be putting a tie on. <laughs> <laughs> Hey-o! <laughs> so, here we go. So, I thought the, this was pretty cool stuff yeah. here, and I was very happy to see these, which you have told me are not... These are not the real Mazer tanks. They're not really called Mazers in here? They give them a different name? No, Is those are. Those are, are Mazer oh, tanks, okay. yeah. I, I, I mean, they look like it. I thought maybe they... I thought you had said they were given a different name. Mm. No, these these are definitely Mazer tanks. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they have an incredible... Well, I find that an, an incredible story. Um, this is the first appearance of the Mazer tanks. It was, of course, precedented by by other mecha, Toho mecha, like the Markalite in 1957's Mysterians, uh, the Atomic Heat Ray in the original Mothra, and uh, one of my favorites, the A-Cycle Light Ray in Monster Zero. Uh, the Mazer cannons were designed by Mitsumi Toyoshima, who also designed the Moonlight SY-3 from Destroy All Monsters, uh, Super X from Godzilla 1985 and the Black Shark from Latitude Zero, uh, amongst other things. Um, when he was asked about this design for the cannon by Ed Gojiteski, uh, he said, First of all, I had to keep the lamp in mind when I designed this. It was a key point of the weapon, so I had to think about how to make it look good. Since the base of the vehicle was someone else's design, because the trailer and the barrel were uh, recycled from the A-Cycle Light Ray, uh, he said, this job wasn't so enjoyable. I just put the dish on top of someone else's work. I understand it was a budgetary consideration. I wish I could say something better about it or that I liked it, but it's not my favorite. But it did make Takagi, which is uh, art assistant director, assistant art director Akinori to Takagi, uh, it did make him happy since he uh, since he just wanted to make it functional. The score during this uh, sequence is very good in the Japanese version, and it's kind of disappointing that it's stock footage here in the American version. But. See, see, I kind of disagree because basically what you hear in the in the Japanese version is essentially like the uh, monster. What is it? The it's called Operation L March in the War of the Gargantuas score, but it's basically the same thing you hear in Monster Zero, the Monster Mega War March, and this music. I will say, just in this scene. It kind of adds this like frenetic, uh, frenetic, you know, tones with more ominous sounds, and it's I like it better. It's actually called Terror Hunt by a composer named Philip Green. Um, but I will say that while I enjoy it for this part, it gets a little old because they keep recycling it over and over again. I have to say that when I first saw this, I had a lot of problems with this scene, um, even though there's some things that are done really, really well. I think some of the miniature work and how they filmed the fire and the flames at, at speeds that made it look, I guess, larger was done really well. I don't understand how they either, one, figured out they needed lights on all of their equipment, or two, why the Japanese Defense Force has so many vehicles with massive lights mounted on them. Uh, you know, they gotta be able to see monsters. They probably, I mean, in seriousness, the, the, the idea probably was that they knew that Gargantua didn't like light, so they put lights on the vehicles. Sure, but I, 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 these happen really close together. You know, we were talking about 
timing and we'll talk about more of the film in here, but that's just one of those where it seems like something's missing. I just want to say at least they saved those pigs from being eaten. Well, they did. Thank goodness. Yep. So uh, here, the officer to the left of Jun Tazaki is played by Nadal Carino, who uh, is often seen in the background of these kaiju films. Uh, He's notable for his Caucasian-like face. He appeared in Daikaiju Varan, Battle in Outer Space, Gorath, King Kong vs. Godzilla, Atragon, Dagora, the Space Monster, Frankenstein Conquers the World, Monster Zero, King Kong Escapes, and Destroy All Monsters. And I guess I just read that off of off my list. So these these helicopters that they're mm-hmm. using here, I actually the first time I watched this, I was like, ah, oh, those don't look very good. Like those miniatures don't look very good. Um and I I think that was because I actually had not seen what kind of helicopters they were supposed to be. I thought they just looked really weird as far as their design. Um, but they are actually uh, based on a real helicopter. They're the uh, Sikorsky H-19 Chickasaw. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I was going to say the wrong number. I was thinking they were Sikorsky 62s. Ah, close. They're also known as the S-55. Uh, and they were the f- Army's first true, hand-sport, uh, true transport helicopter, and they were actually used in the Japanese Self-Defense Force starting in 1954. I'm guessing because of Godzilla's attacks, but that's just me. <laughs> I, I love his monster face and his shaggy fur. I just want to point that out. Do you want a pet gargantua? I do. Yeah. I really like the way they look. If I could raise a brown gargantua, <laughs> I, yeah. I'd be into that. I'm more, I, I'd be interested in checking out a blue gargantua, seeing what those yeah. guys look like. So check out us, like, Obviously, they're opening fire on the green gargantua here. And look at all of the fire and explosions that are actually happening right on the costume right there. I have been dying to comment on this since I saw it. I'm just... (laughs) I I have commented on this before and others where I'm like, wow, that rubber suit of Godzilla is like they lit it up. This guy is on fire. Yeah, yeah, literally right there. He is on <laughs> fire. And they're like, no, keep rolling. Keep and rolling. do you see the color of those flames? They're they're tinged with that purple. I think that means that there's some magnesium, magnesium. in there. There's, right? stuff, yeah. Yeah, there's stuff going yeah. up in there. That's part of the pyrotechnics. Yes, yes. Yeah. The, the thrashing is actually real here. Yeah. <laughs> this is best performance ever. But the, it, I find it interesting that the army is actually, they are actually kind of hurting him. And, uh, and of course... Those poor people who are living in those houses, and their only crime was wanting to be left alone from society. You know, there goes another one. Boom, yeah. with the tank toss. Uh, but those, you know, those, the the Japanese army, the self defense force, they're actually causing harm to to this monster. And usually, what we see is Godzilla and Rodan and King Ghidra. Those monsters just they don't even get bothered by the by the the weapons. Yeah. Who gave you the order to shoot? They're probably just scared, man. This gargantua looks crazy. Now that guy there, if I can find my notes on him, uh that guy is nope, I don't know. He was <laughs> he was in I know I know he was in Varan the Unbelievable. He was one of the uh the actual um 
he was one of the leads in that film, actually. Well, that's a, a shame that I've lost my place on that. These guys are still flying. It's the it's the same helicopter load of guys. <laughs> well, I think that I mean if I if I got this right, you know, basically they're they're still setting up everything, and the Gargantua attacked too early, as does happen sometimes. And they, so earlier, when I thought that the the helicopters looked kind of fake, that's because I had just never seen this kind of helicopter before. Now these the shots you're seeing here of the helicopters, these are obviously real helicopters uh either on loan or or uh being you know graciously moved for toho so that they could use this these shots but um when i saw that they were actually real helicopters i changed my to my tone about uh about the models then later on you'll see the models actually um i don't know if it was a different scale model maybe they had different uh different sizes built for the movie but You'll see the the size of the ones when the gargantua gets attacked by or starts attacking. I'm starting to see what you're talking about, Martin, with their just spending a lot of time with the military setup. Yeah. Do we need to see those cables going through the forest? We are essentially seeing footage of people plugging things in. <laughs> <laughs> Large men plugging things in, <laughs> turning screws and adjusting them. <laughs> <laughs> it's my only MST3K reference during this whole movie. That's good. Yeah. That was a good one. <laughs> yeah, so this same theme, the terror hunt, has been continuing this whole time. Now it's back to, of course, now that I say that, it's back to Akira Fukabe's work, but... um. Uh, so I want to say something about the forest a little bit later, but check out the the match. I mean, basically, you look at the scene here with the the little mobile headquarters here, and how well it matches the actual wilderness that they made mm -hmm. onto the set. It looks amazing. Yeah, these uh, it's amazing what they built on sound stages for for any of these films, but this one in particular. There's a there's a lot of ground covered by. Green Gargantua, and they do a really good job of uh, of building very effective sets that look great. I really wanted that van though that they had back at the mobile command center because the van, the side of the van is a chalkboard. I'm pretty sure. If only you could make that yourself. I know somehow I know. with some sort of. I want a chalkboard. Chalkboards or chalkboard <laughs> paint. <laughs> I do love how how. Uh, They've got the green gargantua, even though he's in the wilderness, you know, sort of in the mountains, he's still like getting back to his own, you know, roots of he's a water monster, essentially. So like he's he's going to the river and he's crushing a bridge under his foot that's in his way in the river. I just love the way that the water looks when they they film this at the high speed it looks really cool. Yeah, all the miniature work, like uh, like we said earlier, just all the building stuff, especially later on, just uh, looks so great. And it it kind of goes downhill once you get into the 70s as far as we don't get as many of those scenes later. But I think this is kind of the apex of some of those scenes, in my opinion, at least. 
Well, this is really sort of the apex of Japanese film production anyway. Um, if you think about how much how much money was being poured into the film industry, this was really at the height of the of that. And it's you're starting to see like this is right when TVs were starting to get popular and this is when like from here on out like the quality of the movies starts to decline. You've got a couple of years before, you know, Destroy All Monsters comes in with it's sort of like here's our big last hurrah and uh you know, we're going to show you all the monsters and have this really amazingly large scale plot and so forth. But uh I mean, you can really see the decline very very easily from there. You know, you don't get a this is like seriously the later in the movie when you see the city destruction, you don't get that in a lot of movies after this. And uh so this is lots and lots of uh of money being poured into this movie. This is probably one of the best special effects films ever made in Japan. Tokusatsu means Japanese special effects. And uh like this scene coming up is what I consider to be like just amazing film work. And so much of the, the, the scenes around this part of the movie are used as stock footage. Very uh, true. Very for true. For the next 10 years in Toho films. So to the extent where technically the gr- the green gargantua can kind of be seen in stuff like Godzilla versus Gigan and Megalon. Cause they show the Mazer tank blasting trees and he's technically behind there. Oh, I did not actually recognize that. Well, he he fades into the background pretty well, so it doesn't show up. But darn it, sounds like I'm like I'm gonna have to watch that movie again. Godzilla versus Gigan. I don't want to watch Godzilla versus Megalon again. <laughs> but yeah, look how huge that miniature is. That's not what I would consider miniature, but basically, you're looking at like a three foot long model essentially, which Gyra just smashes. <clears throat> and thank goodness those men, uh, you know, sacrificed their lives for those for <laughs> the rest of the time that was needed to set up those uh Yeah, they're still those electrodes, setting up, yeah. uh, by the way. No, no, they're done. This. They're all done. They just finished. They're, they're running away. <laughs> Run away! They're running away from the... Uh, it's this all is, plugged in, right? Knowing yeah. what's <laughs> in the uh, the water, I would not want to be one of those guys running through the river <laughs> at this point. I'd be like, get me a sky bridge or a... <laughs> Probably that was their helicopter that, that crashed, that uh, the Gyra yeah, grabbed. Yeah, transported it on. But this is good. I like how the helicopter stops and then just kind of hovers so that Gyra can't grab him. And then just essentially lures him right into the, uh, the water there. <laughs> so if you thought the the... <laughs> if you thought that the acting, I'm not saying that it, it's definitely brutal to see the the fire on on the actual Gyra suit and the explosions going off. That's brutal for sure, no no question. But the the acting that that uh, I'll I'll do quotes for it. The acting that Nakajima was doing for when he was getting uh, blown up, essentially. <laughs> if you thought that was good, I I really love what's about to happen when. They start shooting him with the Mazer cannons, and they're cutting through the trees, and the lasers are hitting him, and then he steps into the water. That's like, I think that's amazing. Like, 
I actually feel bad for the monster, mm-hmm. even though he's a jerk. Yeah. Yeah, I think I just this is to me this is like the epitome of of a giant monster getting uh getting his butt handed to him by by the Japanese self defense force. You don't get to see that. So the um the Mazer cannon, I will say one more thing about that. Uh the assistant art director, Akinori Takagi, said that uh he had the idea to show powerful energy in the neck of the cannon. The light would flow through that part, uh, and at the time there was a light bulb called an iodine lamp. The problem with it was that it wouldn't light unless they kept it parallel to the ground. So they designed the Mazer tank so that the head would always be level with the floor. Um, but because that, you know, normally they add that kind of thing with optical animation later on in, in the post-production process. But they were able to create that light on on the set and everybody loved it. I thought this was cool when it they're essentially giving the look of this. It's cutting through the trees, and all the trees are dropping. Oh, it's That's amazing. really yeah, this well is great. done. It's crazy. And, like, the whole the whole bit about Gyra getting just attacked and just... you're there. If you see later on, when those mazers are hitting him and when the lasers are hitting him, bits of flesh are flying off of him. He's mm-hmm. getting damaged. I think this is one of the only times I've ever seen a monster like literally just become so hurt by the Japanese self-defense force in a, in a Japanese film, of course. <laughs> and here it comes. <laughs> this is where I feel bad for him. He's like, I got to get out of here. And then they've electrified his precious river. Oh man. Yeah. See all the, the wounds that he's sustained through this fight. And he just looks, Nakajima's doing a fantastic job in this. He just oh, looks, yeah, for sure. yeah. he looks yeah. like he's just getting his ass kicked. I mean, like, and he's tired, he's shaking, shaking, and man, he's like, I can't take it anymore, I'm just going to fall forward, and up, oh, nope, flailing through the water. Actually, there's an artist named uh, Yuji Kaida, and um, he did a painting where uh, the Mazer cannons are on one side, and... Gyra's like basically flailing in the water. He's got this huge water arc around him. And uh, it's a really cool painting. And actually they made the um they made a toy, little tiny Gashapon toy from some of his stuff, including that that painting. And of course, now we've introduced the new gargantua. This is the brown gargantua. Otherwise known as Sanda. <clears throat> Sanda is played by Yu. Sakita, and uh, if I did my research well enough, this is Sakita's first kaiju role, but later the in the same year, he would don the Crustacean Ibira costume from Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. Uh, he played both Gorosaurus and Mechanicong in the 1967 King Kong Escapes. He played Angulus in Destroy All Monsters and Gabara in uh, Godzilla's Revenge. Um, it's also... He's also listed as playing Godzilla in the 1967 Son of Godzilla, and I think that's because he's uh, they needed someone to someone that was taller than Nakajima to play Godzilla uh, to counter the short Minya in that movie. 
Yeah, I, I really love this stuff when Santa shows up. It uh, reminds me of what I like the most out of uh, King Kong-style movies, where you feel sorry for the actual monster. You which got is, that humanoid monster. Yeah, I, I, I'm a real, real stupid idiot sucker for those kind of movies. So. <laughs> I like how they basically just stop firing. They're like, whoa, another monster, yeah. we don't know what to do. And they just like, one. stop attacking. Well, that was emotional, dude, like I was just saying. You know? I'm just saying you th- so you think Sanda... <laughs> The military. Emotionalized the military. <laughs> they were overcome. They were like, oh, he's he's a person on the inside. <laughs> well, he certainly looks more like a person than, than Gyra does. Mm-hmm. And he, he looks like the uh, logical uh, next step in what the Frankenstein monster looked like in Frankenstein Conquers the World, I've always thought. Oh, that's an interesting concept. I like that. I can deal with that. And this is great, too, matching up these trees knocked over with the trees that we just saw get blasted on mm-hmm. their side. Mm-hmm. They're those giant cables. So maybe it was necessary for us to see the giant cables getting pulled the forest through the forest, Martin. It was not. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a line that Russ Hamlin <laughs> says when uh, Kenji Zahara <laughs> says something to him. He's asking a question. And Russ Hamlin <laughs> says... Uh, Maybe if we don't ask so many questions, and I'm sorry, isn't that what scientists do as they ask questions so that they can try to answer them? Yeah, it pretty much is. Glad Kumi Mizuno found some cells. I I do I will say that there's something about the Toho movies that I love um and I'm I wish they would bring back in newer films and that's that um the scientists are like free agents but they still work with the military and they are the ones that actually do I was making fun of it earlier but they are the ones that actually kind of set up the entire victory you know in monster zero if it weren't for the scientists there we would have been taken over you know we they wouldn't have been able to figure out how to disrupt the the waves that were taking over the monsters they wouldn't have been able to find out uh well i won't say that uh that akira kubo's character was a scientist but he was an inventor that created that lady guard alarm so like (laughs) Not military, but anyway, you know, it's just like one of those things. I like that. I like monster in uh, Mothra versus Godzilla. You get the um, the reporters who are the main characters of the story, and they work with the scientists. And basically, if it weren't for those characters, if it weren't for that character development, you wouldn't get the same. Uh, you wouldn't get the same resonance, and I think that's what Ishiro Honda really does well. Is he works, he does a great job making his characters. Uh, relatable to real people. So if uh, maybe if everybody was a military person, you wouldn't care as much about them as you do because they're more like average Joe people. Sounds uh, like a good theory. That's a theory. 100% mine. I didn't rip that off from anybody else, especially Steve Rifle or Ed Gojicheski. I do I do also like how they uh they've hidden themselves in their natural environment. So Sanda hides himself in the trees and Gyra jumps in the jumps in the river. Yeah, the scale makes the effects look really cool. We mentioned it in the Frankenstein Conquers World episode, but scaling things down to where the creatures can kind of walk 
in an alleyway of buildings as opposed to towering over them. Uh, looks, looks way, way cool. Oh, yeah. That, it allows for a lot more detail, that's for sure, in the miniature work. I like how they pulled out this tiny little thing in that <laughs> giant river. <laughs> we got it. Eagle Eye Mizuno, or Dr. Akemi, I should say. She did the same thing with the chunk that was in the stump. It was like, yeah. How the heck is she spotting this stuff? Like a truffle pig. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to get so much hate mail from this dude. Now, so they're talking about the cells, and essentially what they're talking about is cloning. I mean, they're talking about uh, the Frankenstein cells reproduced into, and in, in the Japanese version, of course, they talk about these these monsters like they're Frankenstein. They don't ever call them gargantuous in the in the Japanese film. Japanese version of this film is that's just gargantuous, something they they used for this film, which I'm kind of glad because I, you know, first off, it bugs me that the uh, they call them. Frankenstein instead of Frankenstein's monster. That's just a personal oh, pet peeve got of mine. Yeah. Personal uh, little yeah. tick. <clears throat> yeah, I've got that going on. <laughs> but the <laughs> uh I don't know. I find I find it interesting that they I wish they would have actually focused a little bit more on the cells. And uh at one point uh during a it's not necessarily a press conference, but they're getting confronted by the um it's earlier in the film, they're getting confronted by the by the press and one of the guys you know says like are you would you really be you know are you really interested in working on these cells more and Russ Hamlin's character is like yeah absolutely you know and I I really like that I think that's that's really the point of science you know it's to to keep keep at it until you can find something useful with it By the way, for folks, uh, I would go and check out Russ Tamblin as uh, the Dr. Jacoby character. If you have yeah. not watched the <laughs> Twin, Twin Peaks, Peaks TV yeah. series, he is really great in that. And he, he continues his career today. He is just in uh, Django Unchained uh, as, a, as a gunfighter, I believe, in there. But definitely should check him out as Dr. Lawrence Jacoby. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so these hikers are singing this song and um the Japanese version because I'm going to make, you know, many many references to the Japanese version of this film. They actually have the uh subtitles to this song. They've translated them onto the screen. This is this lovely little ditty is about hunting and fishing <laughs> of all things. <laughs> this is the this is the true Audubon society. It's to- talking about chasing <laughs> rabbits and and uh, and catching fish. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh this is you know, the scene with Tamblin and Mizuno is unfortunately it's just she she is a is a lovely woman, I'm sure, but uh the chemistry between them is non existent when you compare um and I'm of course I'm putting uh Nick Adams on a pedestal here, but like the the difference between Nick Adams and Kumi Mizuno and the way they look and act together and uh, between how Rust Hamlin and Mizuno <laughs> act together is, is palpable. There's just, I don't, I don't feel any connection. And in fact, in the, uh, 
later on in the film he just refers to him refers to her as his assistant and it's it's almost like yes that is what i feel that you guys are just co-workers <laughs> even though i think the script called for a little bit more of a love interest kind of thing i would be a little wary of going on a picnic if there had been giant monsters in this forest recently well that's what He's he's yeah. saying that the youth yeah. do is they they thrive and they <laughs> they blossom when there's danger. But especially yeah, let's go hiking <laughs> in the woods in the mist. It's yeah. not. I love this dude in the front though. He kind of goes like the he gives like the shoe <laughs> like oh go away go away <laughs> get out of here <laughs> move it. It looks like he's trying to tell the gargantua to leave. Oh, and then. uh they're so confused. Why could all these people be running away? A giant? That's a new predicament in this situation. Yeah. So Martin mentioned uh, Django Unchained, and uh, that's a good segue to say that uh, Tarantino has said uh, that he's a big fan of this movie and uh, supposedly owns a print of this movie and uh, based a lot of the fight scene between Uma Thurman and uh, Daryl... Hannah, Hannah, Daryl Hannah. And Kill Bill Volume 2, he based a lot of their fight on the creatures fighting at the end of this movie. That really? Is, that is also what I read. He wanted it, he was telling them he wanted it to be War of the Blonde Gargantuas. Wow, okay. So, um, when I was watching this with my girlfriend, uh, when uh, Kumi Musuno slipped and fell, <laughs> she was just like, of course. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, Japanese women in these films, when they slip, fall, uh, like uh, run down a river, uh, like in King Kong versus Godzilla, just like completely off their rocker, uh, those really annoy her. And so, because she fell, but look how strong she is. She's almost up, able to do that pull up uh, on that branch. But, you know, that's. And that's definitely a plot device that gets used in a lot of films, not just Japanese ones. She can barely hold on. If only some monster would come rescue her, since Russ Tamlin is not up to the task. <laughs> Shake the ivy, maybe I can <laughs> try that. Shaking the bush, boss. <laughs> oh, thank goodness, here comes Sanda. Yeah, so this is actually uh, the first time I watched this and the rock comes down right there. It even made like a dent in the costume. <laughs> like, it did not look like foam. It looked like they were like, okay, we're going to actually make this one out of concrete so you can you can act. But man, it looked painful. And then Russ just sits there and stares. That was method acting. Yeah, man. Groovy. Groovy method acting. Now, this was something of a tougher movie to find back in the uh, 80s and 90s, I felt, at least from my perspective. It was very hard to find this on uh, tape or Laserdisc, and I ended up having to tape it off of TBS late night, one night with commercials in it and whatnot, before I actually got my hands on a laser disc of it years later. Yeah, I didn't actually see. I don't think I saw this film until. Well, it would have been the late '90s when I finally watched it. If it if it wasn't the, I think though that the first time I saw it was 
when it came out on DVD from Classic Media. So honestly, this was definitely one of the the long lost kaiju films. I know it was available on VHS at the local video store, but uh, yeah, that's definitely one of the most recent guts, uh, kaiju films that I've seen. The advantage of growing up in Hawaii. Yeah. Did you see this in the theater? <laughs> yes. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's really awesome. Oh, so this boat, they actually moved that scene. This is like one of the stupid things I should talk, should probably not talk about, but they moved that boat shot. Uh, in the Japanese version, it was actually placed right at the end of Sanda saving Mizuno. And so now they put it here, which is actually much more understandable. Yeah, there is a delay uh, in the Japanese version, so it's not as obvious. But, Cindy, what, what year did you see uh, War of the Gargantuas in a theater? Oh, God. <laughs> Do you remember? I honestly don't remember. Well, did you see it in English? Subtitled. Oh, wow. There was That's a lot cool. of, of stuff that my parents would take me to see. There'd be, like, Japanese ghost story movies and monster movies, and the vast majority of it was subtitled. And now everyone everyone hates you. I'm very jealous. Yeah, that's so, super cool. <laughs> so I, I do want to talk about the trees here. Um, the same uh, in one of the in the ah, come on, Kyle. In the documentary Godzilla bringing Godzilla down to size, the art director Toshiro Aoki said that when the Gargantuas entered the forest set, he didn't know what trees they would pull up. Uh, so if a tree didn't have roots, it would look fake. So he had to attach roots to every single tree Whoa. in there. And so for the branches, they used small pine trees uh, called Himurosugi, and they trimmed it like uh, bonsai, you know, bonsai trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, they trimmed it to just look like branches from a big tree, and then the roots had to be thicker to look realistic, so they actually took roots from um, a giant goldenrod plant, and, and literally every single one of those trees has those roots. And... Um, they were essentially, you know, when they planted them, they were alive. They had to do this right before the filming began because they only had a couple of days. Otherwise, everything would start to die. Oh, so yeah. So they put all this together then knowing that it, it was together and they had they had a very small window to do it. This exactly. For a month yeah. or two. Yeah, it couldn't, it couldn't <laughs> sit around for sure. I do, uh, I do really respect Gyra's running. He's fast. You don't get to see fast monsters. I mean, ex- unless they're flying. And he runs and he jumps into the water later, too. It's it's really, really agile. Yeah, so they talk more about the cells throughout the movie, but I just wish they spent a little bit more time on them. They're they're concerned that these cells are going to they're going to kill the monster, and his cells are going to reproduce, and then they're going to have a lot more gargantuas on their hands. Oh yeah, yeah, that's one of the cooler ideas in this movie, I think. And if anyone was ever to remake this movie, I would greatly appreciate it if they'd have scenes of. Parts of the gargantuas getting blown off and then becoming their own smaller gargantuas that grow in size. I think that'd be really cool. It's a, it's a neat idea, like the immortal Frankenstein cells. 
Um, and and the, it, that really does tie it into Frankenstein Conquers the World, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, the and him running through the scenes like that, like basically the army sets up and they have no time to even fire off a shot because he's running so fast. He just blew through their line of defense like like it was nothing. Those They were probably just loving that, being able to be in a suit that could do that. Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, Nakajima said that this was one of his favorite roles. And um, I want to say that it it's probably because of the mobility coupled with the fact that he was also um, the fight choreographer. And so he modeled it all after, uh, at least the fights, he modeled that stuff after pro wrestlers. And he was just really pleased with how it all came out. He actually gets to see out of the eye sockets of the eyes. Of yeah, the, the actual eyes. In. <laughs> Instead <laughs> of pinholes in the neck. In yeah. The, yeah. And essentially, it's, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, like just big football pads on their shoulders. It, yeah. Like, you know, with latex around it. I don't know. I honestly, you know, I don't know what those suits are actually like, but that's what it kind of looks like. It's just some extra padding around the shoulders and then, you know, the mask and then stuff i think even later when he's uh barefoot you know sorry even later when he's walking through tokyo those might even actually be his real feet like without you know he didn't have like another foot sock on oh gotcha. yeah i'd be very interested to see how many other monster movies allow the actor's eyes to come through it's very rare but i know one I see it, I like it. and i love it Daimajin. Yeah. This set, freaking amazing. Yes. Like, that shot totally looks like a real... Like, the perspective is perfect. The the miniature work is perfect. Like, when Gyra runs through that local small fishing village into into the beach, I was like, whoa, that's not composited. That's like an actual miniature. Uh, the council room. Literally, science versus military here. And I find it weird that they're arguing. I mean, I know that Russ Tamlin's character, Dr. Stewart, wants to save the brown gargantua for scientific study, but they should all be able to agree that the, you know, the gargantua cells are going to be, you know, they have the, the ability to reproduce, and that if they if they destroy everything, they could have, if they destroy the monsters, they could have all these extra cells on their hands, which will, you know, come to life eventually. But I guess they've got to have some sort of conflict. Yeah, I've always kind of thought that uh, if Toho were to redo some of their older non-Godzilla movies... I would definitely start with where the Gargantuas and, and Mysterians. It'd be nice to see those two movies are at the top of my list of what I'd like to well, see. I would like, love redone. to see an updated version of Mysterians. That would be yeah. really cool. Not that there's anything wrong with either of these. No, movies, I love the classic movies, that's for sure. But, you know, the movie shot in 1957 could definitely be improved upon. So um <clears throat> so when Russ Hamlin got the call for this film 
uh, he said that he had pretty much retired from working on movies. But essentially, it's his his IMDb uh, movie, you know, repertoire. His his uh his what do you call that? His movieography, filmography. Thank you, thank you, Kyle, for saying that. Anyway, it doesn't reflect that. Um, he basically did a movie every every other year or so forth. Um, and essentially, Russ Hamlin took this movie. I uh, took the took the opportunity to go to Japan, and I think he was just saying like, "Oh, cool trip to Japan." And uh, everyone, if you ask, which you can't ask Saperstein anymore. Uh, basically, Saperstein called him a prima donna. Uh, Kumi Mizuno referenced uh, how his uh, Russ Tamlin's wife was always on set and was always very agitated looking, and that Russ Tamlin did not spend a lot of time uh, interacting with with other cast members. He just kind of like was there and went off and did his own thing. Like he was just there for the paycheck, essentially. It's essentially phoning it in, which is kind of what his his actual character is is showing as far as i'm concerned like i'm not he's i'd definitely say that russ tamlin is one of my least favorite caucasian actors in a godzilla film and i'm not sure but that dude right there looks like the guy who plays happy in uh in ultra q one of the three main characters in ultra q but he goes by so quickly that i can't see you know i think on the the, the russ tamlin thing i think that he had an expectation from West Side Story that never happened. I think he was supposed to be bigger than he was. Hmm. And and it didn't happen. I think he went, I think, you know, this was a paycheck for him because it was like, eh, all right, this is what I'm doing. Now, the city set, the downtown Tokyo city set in this film is really fantastic. There's a lot of buildings, I would imagine. Um, and I know they moved set pieces around so they could film things. That's how Subaraya did things. Um, but the way that this entire set is constructed, if you take into account, like, basically from here till almost the end of the movie, right, is where you're dealing with the, the city destruction stuff. It must have been huge. This must have been, like, on the biggest soundstage they had at Toho, and it must have taken them probably months to build everything. Yeah, there's a great amount of detail, like you were saying, with the roots of the trees, it made me think that... Later in the movie, when they slam each other into some of these buildings, on the inside of the wrecked buildings will be a small stairwell that's kind of like hanging, uh, just kind of hanging there, all half destroyed. And it's it's a that's a great amount of detail if they're doing the insides of some of the buildings. Yeah, I I mean that's one of the things that bothers me the most about people who trash you know trash these films verbally speaking. Mm-hmm. They they talk about. They say, oh, it's just a man in a suit. And they say, the worst thing you could ever say to, you know, if you're around me, is that um, they're cardboard buildings. That is guaranteed to earn my ire. <laughs> I mean, it's clearly not cardboard. And they put so much effort into the miniaturization of a city that I just can't imagine actually saying that. And, you know, it's mostly ignorance, I think, that that breeds that sort of uh, idea ignorance and uh, you know just hearing it from somebody else that whole thing where <laughs> sorry i have to say russ <laughs> yeah. tamlin running with his hands out like 
Hand off the baton. Hand off the baton. Kumi, you're running too fast. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, anyway, it just bugs me when people say that kind of thing because I know how much work goes into this. I don't know personally because I've never done it, but like, man, just the actual detail, especially in the 60s movies, is just just off the charts. They're so good. And uh, when people don't respect that, it really bothers me because you get people like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg have openly talked about how amazing Eiji Tsuburaya's team uh, worked on the special effects, uh, how amazing the special effects were worked yeah. on Eiji Tsuburaya's team. And I just, I love these movies. And that's actually one of the reasons I do the show. One of the reasons I'm such a big fan is that I think that these, Oh, that's awesome. I love the Aww. crushed cars. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, all right. So the thing is, he's like, he's purposely hitting the cars. There was room to step around them. That's just, <laughs> I mean, come on. That was selfish. Gargantua the, don't care about your down payment. Right. <laughs> he's the evil one, dude. <laughs> he is the evil one. <laughs> Sand is probably going to come around and like step around the, this was, the cars. Yeah, this is grumpy Gargantua. Grumpy, grumpy gargantua. He does kind of look like that. Yeah, when when going back to when you were saying uh, people slagging these movies off, uh, you know, you as a fan, I've heard it my whole life. And the thing to, that I don't understand is when you compare it to other movies from the time period. Yeah, these movies really look a lot better than a lot of stuff that was going on at the time. Yeah, these it wasn't are... until like basically Star Wars came out in 1977 mm -hmm. that science fiction films became. You know, something that anybody in America put real strong effort into. I mean, in the 50s, in the 60s, and early 70s, science fiction films were... Well, I guess, actually, I should say it was probably 2001. Because that's late 60s, right? Mm-hmm. 2001's like 68, I think. Yeah, so uh, until 68, like... Nobody really cared about the science fiction genre in America. And 68's also the original Planet of the Apes. That's when... That's another key factor of science fiction starting to be taken a little more seriously and getting bigger budgets. Well, and you know, it, when we first started talking about this today, before we started the commentary, uh, I had made a few comments about some things, and part of that was my theory on this film. And for whatever issues or anything there is like that that I could have about it, I really feel like this movie was made because everybody that was involved the set builders, the directors, everybody was kind of like, we really love doing this, let's do this. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that they had maybe taken enough time to write a good script or anything like that. I think they had a, a formula that they thought would work on an American soil with throwing Russ Tamblin in uh, and the, the uh, singer at the beginning. I think they were trying to reach for a formula and do something really quick because they really liked building sets people in big suits and all of these people getting together. And I really think I do. And not in a negative way. I think this movie is all about that fun. And let's just get to this part. I don't think you're too far off. I mean, basically this movie was part of a several picture deal that, uh, Henry Saperstein, uh, made with Toho to, to co-produce these films. So, uh, Saperstein's company, UPA, they co-produced this one and the Killing Jar, I believe. Killing Bottle? I've never seen it. But this one and uh, Frankenstein Conquers the World and uh, Monster Zero were all made uh, by Toho and co-financed by uh, UPA. And with the explicit 
desire to bring them to the States to put in a, an American star, somebody that was recognizable that would bring in uh, ticket sales or bring, you know, sell seats essentially. Sure, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that it's, it was a co-production in the sense that basically Toho, I think, came up with the premise. Um, and like we talked about with the Daikaiju discussion for war, uh, sorry, for Frankenstein Conquers the World, the Frankenstein was actually part of one of the original pitches for King Kong versus Godzilla to be uh, part of that whole thing. And then it was their idea to bring that back. And I think Saperstein was essentially like, oh, yeah, let's do that. And he had a lot of input into this. He was actually going to Toho and meeting with the Toho brass and uh, making decisions based off of these things. And so he his, his uh, cohort... Ruben Berkovich uh, actually tinkered with the script that was provided through Toho. And I don't know. I mean, I think, like I said, I think you're not far off. I think it's just one of those things where Saperstein, he was sort of this guy that knew how to, how to deal with, with film and knew what sold seats and knew how to sell those films to other companies. And he was like, this, actually he was really just kind of a, a glorified middleman. I like what he did for the, for the genre, for sure, because if it weren't for Saperstein, we wouldn't have War of the Gargantuas. We wouldn't have, uh, we wouldn't have my favorite film from the '60s, which is Monster Zero. Well, he seemed to put a little bit more effort into uh, these movies than like American International did or Sandy Frank did with the Gamera films. Uh, there is a bit oh, more. He definitely put a lot more you know, into it. Yeah, a bit more marketing. Uh, push and localization attempts so basically he's he he has like a respect for the genre i would say oh absolutely i mean he he had a huge respect for ishiro honda he had a huge respect for age Tsuburaya. um i mean even until the 90s well you know right before he died anytime he was interviewed about the genre you know he saperstein had a really funny sort of voice when he talked about these movies, I don't mean like his actual audible voice, but like when you read an interview with him, he it's, he's not a detail oriented guy. He's sort of a broad, a big picture, broad strokes kind of guy that he's like, Oh yeah. I remember that picture where Godzilla, you know, kills Mothra with the two twins and they're singing to him while they're, while everybody's at war. And it's like, well, yeah, you're talking about Mothra versus Godzilla, but, that's not exactly what happened, you know, and that's that's fine because what Saperstein ended up doing was providing America with not just one Godzilla movie, but he essentially brought over, um, I think, everything from 1964 through 1975, which is a pretty big deal, not to mention he was in charge of licensing, so, uh, you know, kids my age at the time kids of my age at the time of uh Mattel's Shogun Warrior series we got the Godzilla figure the Godzilla gang which were essentially just reproduced uh, uh reissued poppy figures i think and you know the Godzilla comic book and the Hanna-Barbera cartoon which is you know is not they're not awesome but the they're better than nothing and even up until the 90s you know Saperstein was in charge of the Godzilla license and he did a good job of releasing things so that Godzilla's name was at least 
in in people's uh you know in people's brains it if it weren't for Saperstein, I doubt Godzilla would be a household name and people would know who he is. That's very cool. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Yeah. There's my little rant on Saperstein. I don't know why I did that. But... In the meantime, the gargantuans are tearing apart too. Yeah, so this is this is the fight that Brian was talking about that, that Quinn Tarantino told, um, told Uma Thurman and Daryl Hannah to base their fight off of this. And guys, it looks awesome. It looks really <laughs> awesome. I actually right like earlier today, I was like like desperately looking for Kill Bill two to see if we had it in the house. We don't have it here, unfortunately, but I, I think I have rewatched Kill Bill two with that in mind, and I think they're just uh going after the spirit of this fight. But I have read that the movie Crank Two, which I've never seen there is a fight scene that is uh, supposedly literally like move for move copied from this fight scene. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be watching Crank 2 just for that. Yeah, I, I would agree. Hmm. Seems rather short-sighted. So the the acting involved <laughs> here, you know, with, with Sanda and Gyra, I really love how Gyra is doing that whole like, look, I'm going to attack you. I'm going to attack you. I'm going to come after you. And Sanda is like, I don't want to attack you. I don't want to attack you. It's almost like both monsters know that Sanda would win the fight, but neither one of them actually want to do, you know, to do battle. Well, I mean, until this part, but. (laughs) Ah, man. Yeah, this is definitely one of the more pro wrestling style fights in these movies. And it's awesome. It is totally awesome. I would love to have been on the set of this film. Just to just to see it. <laughs> that is like a gigantic <laughs> playground right there. Rough housing, you guys. Well, this is probably well from you know I haven't seen all of the films, but no, there are no fight scenes in any of the other large monster movies that are like this at all. They're not having this much physical contact. They're not. I mean, there's there's no wire here, right? That's going on. These guys are tossing each other around. The suits are handling it. I mean, that's all pretty cool stuff. Yeah, you do get a lot of that sort of physicality in um, the later films because. you know they were trying to bring in more more viewers by being more uh i would, I would say more brutal in a mm-hmm. sense like Godzilla versus Gigan uh I don't know if you were here for that Daikaiju discussion I I really do want to rewatch that again with my girlfriend so you should come over and and check that as, as okay. well but uh the fights in Godzilla versus Gigan and the fights in Godzilla versus Megalon are definitely some of the more physical brawls that you see in the Godzilla series. Now you get um just some extremely violent action. There's a couple times when like blood is shown in uh in Gigan, I think. Yeah, Gigan. But those those suits blood. are limiting though. I it, and it's noticeable. These guys there's there's a lot more physical contact and a lot more physical action that is going on because of the type of monster they're portraying here. Yeah. And I think 
what Brian was saying about scale as well, like allows for sort of, you know, the detail and the uh, film speed to show off more of that sort of uh, just aggressive wrestling, essentially. And like I said earlier, you know, this Nakajima based this stuff off of pro wrestling. It's a pretty long fight. You're totally... I should have timed it like I did the Rodan thing. <laughs> <laughs> the explosions. And the buildings seem to collapse uh, in a way that uh, is a bit more like uh, the higher budget films. Like when you look at something like Dogura, where those city destruction scenes are very elaborate, the miniatures are well done, and you don't get to see that kind of thing in the traditional monster fighting movies. But Yeah, I kind of wonder here. if they had, if they basically built the city and they're like, well, you don't know exactly what's going to get crushed. I mean, we assume that building 130A here is going to gonna get, you know, where where Sanda throws Gyra on top of it and this building over here is where they push each other into it. But I would imagine that there are, they've got to build everything with the, with the understanding that something might go wrong and mm-hmm. one building might come down that they weren't expecting to. I really do love the Mazers. Um, for anybody who's wondering, the Mazers uh, th- were in this film, and then there's a they they also appear in Godzilla versus Gigan and Godzilla versus Megalon, mostly as stock footage. I I want to say there's another version of it, like a Type seventy. This is called the Type sixty six, obviously nineteen sixty six. Um, I want to say there's a Type seventy. Uh, there's definitely a Type ninety because in Godzilla. X Mechagodzilla, otherwise known as Godzilla against Mechagodzilla from 2002, um, Toho remade the Mazer Cannon, and it was an active part of that film. And they did a fantastic job on it. It's actually Tiger's favorite. Uh, no, it's not. I don't know if it's Tiger's favorite Mazer Cannon, but it's definitely up there. It's uh, the only difference that I can remember is that it's a little bit more sleek, but it still looks very similar. And the neck uh, is covered up by sort of a almost like a like a a shroud that comes up over it and it still exposes the 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 light work in the neck of it but hey hey look Russ Hamlin's being a creeper <laughs> <laughs> um but also there was a they did some other versions of the Mazer cannon that just were not called Mazer in the Heisei era starting with Godzilla 1985 and uh even I mean, you could even say the the freeze cannons in Godzilla vs. Destroya are Mazer-like in a sense. And of course, in in Tokyo SOS, uh, Mechagodzilla's chest panel opens up to basically become a gigantic Mazer cannon. When I first saw Godzilla 85, I always felt that the Super X was kind of that. Like, definitely, that was the idea, was the Super X was the new version of the Mazer cannon kind of thing. It kind of was, and then you had Super X2 in Godzilla vs. Mm-hmm. Biollante, and Super X3 brought back for uh, Godzilla, Godzilla vs. Destroya. But I think by by the time you get to Destroya, it's, the Super X has become its own sort of character in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, volcano! Oops. Volcano! <laughs> so this is, a, this is a fl- I mean, I don't want to call it a flaw. I was going to say flaw. Here I am saying flaw again, but uh, this is something that just kind of happens in these movies. 
It's almost like they don't have a good ending for it, so they need a way to get rid of them. And sure, in Godzilla movies, you know, you drop Godzilla into the water and he just sort of hibernates. And in Frankenstein Conquers the World, the there's an earthquake and he and Baragon fall into, you know, an erupting lava pit of destruction. And this is, I guess, sort of the same thing where you get the Gargantuas who need to be completely destroyed so that their cells don't reproduce. How do you, how are you going to destroy them? Drop them into a volcano in the ocean. Yeah. But it looks so cool, dude. It does look cool. <laughs> I mean, I love seeing the, the smoke erupting from the water. That's really amazing. Now, on uh, the Bringing Godzilla Down to Size documentary, is it this effect that they redo, or is it something no, it's actually, it's something similar? It's similar, but it's from uh, Latitude Zero, where they actually film it under underwater, upside down. This one, uh, what they've done is they've built a, essentially built a cone that's inside of the water, but sticking out of the water, and they have... Uh, oh, man, I can't remember what it is, but there's something underneath the water that's creating that sort of bubbles that pop and the smoke comes out. They did the exact same thing for Monster Zero. If only I had been prepared for that question. Is it is it not dry ice that they're using? Maybe. I don't know. I can't remember. That that's the easy way. I don't know if they can do it that and I don't I can't imagine the volume they would need for that. So, according to uh, some sources, Saperstein had plans to make an American Godzilla film that was a sequel to this called Godzilla vs. Gargantua. But uh, apparently those plans fell through and Toho just said no to that idea. And it's a shame because that would have been very cool. It could have been cool. I mean, who knows at this point. Anyway, that was the movie. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks to uh, not just you for listening, but thanks to Martin for being here and Brian and and Cindy as well. Glad you guys could all come out and uh, watch War of the Gargantuas. I am not sure what our next commentary will be, but uh, I will definitely be posting that on the Facebook page for KaijuCast. We'll be talking about it on the podcast as well. And if for some reason you're listening to this commentary, and you have not checked out the podcast, please check us out at kaijucast.com. Uh, until next time, Jamata.